0: Please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. This morning's passage is from the book of 2 John, the 12th verse, which says, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. And keep your Bibles open to the book of 2 John, if you have them with you, as we pray together. God, we are grateful for the fact that we uh, can gather alongside brothers and sisters to receive the encouragement and edification that we receive in this fellowship. We're grateful that you dwell here among your people in our fellowship, and we pray that you would do that today, that you would bless us with your presence that you would draw us near to you, and that we would rejoice to see your face. God, we ask all these things in the name of your Son as we open the book of 2 John together. Amen. This week I was reading an article in preparation for this sermon, and it described a heartwarming moment for some kids who were getting ready to FaceTime or video call their dad for Christmas while he was deployed in Iraq. They were glad, I'm sure, as they prepared for this call, that he was safe, that he had reliable internet that day, that he wasn't out on a mission somewhere so that he could talk to them. But as they got ready for the call, they got their their computer ready, and they got ready to call him, their dad walked into the room. Much to their surprise, of course. It was a very emotional scene for everyone, for the kids, for their mom, for the dad. We live in an age... When technology allows us to remain connected and even to talk to people and to see their faces from halfway around the world. But there is something essentially different about seeing someone on a screen and seeing them face to face. In moments like that one, we realize that the two things are just not the same. The Apostle John who wrote the book of 2 John, which we're looking at this morning, understood that, even if he could not possibly comprehend the sort of technology that keeps us connected today. By word count, 2 John is the second shortest book in the Bible, although 3 John is only about 25 words shorter. Most books in the Bible are divided into chapters, but this one is so short that there's only one chapter. And perhaps because it is so short, this little book near the very back of your Bible is sometimes overlooked its most well-known feature is not a famous verse or a line that is quoted by other new testament authors but the fact that it is only half a page long that's what most people know about the book of second john but it has a lot to offer us in its brevity as john writes to christians who are under pressure from false teachers That is a common theme in the New Testament, all over the New Testament, in fact. During the early days of Christianity, new churches were constantly being bombarded with Gnostic teaching, the influence of Judaizers who argued that Christians needed to keep Jewish purity laws, with syncretism that attempted to merge Christian theology and teaching with pagan theology and rituals, and with twisted and incomplete versions of the gospel message. So it's no wonder... That the apostles spent so much of their time and effort combating these false teachers and so much space in their letters encouraging Christians to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. That is John's focus in this letter. The bulk of it, the bulk of the letter of 2 John, which isn't really saying much, but the majority of this little book is directly focused on encouraging Christians to cling to the truth warning them that many deceivers have gone out into the world, as he says in verse 7. And as he issues this warning, his affection for these people, the recipients of this letter, is clear. He opens it in verse 1 by greeting them, the elder, that's his way of referring to himself, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth." John is not here just to score some theological or intellectual points or to win an argument against people that he disagrees with. He is writing this letter because he loves these people. Scholars are divided over what he means when he greets the elect lady in verse 1. Either he's writing to a particular woman who is raising children in the faith or he is using this language to refer to a local church. Either way, John loves these people, and his love for them, his affection is obvious and reveals that he is not only on a mission to combat false teaching, but also that he cares about these people. So he writes this letter to strengthen them in their faith. But at the very end, where we're looking today, he notes that there is a lot more to say. He says in verse 12, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use pen and ink. When it comes to reinforcing the truth of the gospel, there is a lot to say. But after giving a preliminary warning and encouragement, John sets down his pen. It is not a lack of enthusiasm for the way that God can use letters and writings like this one that prompts John to say this. As the author of five books in the New Testament, John knows that God makes good use of written words. He made that expectation clear in the Gospel of John when he said that he wrote it specifically so that readers may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, they would have life in his name. John knows that God works through words that he works through the inspired word of the apostles to bring people the truth about Christ and the hope of the gospel and to faith and salvation. He knows that a letter can do that work. His belief in the sufficiency of scripture to do the work of God is rock solid. So he could have written a longer letter and we might have expected him to write a longer letter. If he loves these people as much as he clearly does, if he sees this false teaching as, as a significant threat, which he clearly does, we might have expected him to write a really long letter to these people. He could have, as other New Testament books do, examined the false teaching that is threatening his friends, dismantled it, and proclaimed the true gospel. But instead, even though there is so much more to say, he writes, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead... I hope to come to you and talk face to face. He would rather continue this teaching, this encouragement, and the work of disciple-making in person. That is his hope. And he prays that God in his sovereignty and his providence will allow him to see these people face to face sometime soon. One thing is clear. Though John considers it a mark of God's grace that he is able to care for these friends from a distance, he thinks it would be better to be there with them. He does not consider ministry from a distance, the declaration of God's glory and the gospel, and the work of spurring one another on to godliness by means of a letter and a messenger to be inappropriate or unapproved by God. He does not think that clearly. As long as there are circumstances that prevent him from being there, It is a sign of God's grace that he is still able to minister to these people, even while they are far apart. So, for now, he makes use of the tools that are available to him. A pen and a piece of paper. And a messenger who will carry that letter. With the hope that soon they will not be necessary, because he will be in the same room with these people that he loves and is ministering to. We know from experience That being face-to-face with someone is different than communicating through a medium like a letter or a computer screen. But scripture also makes clear that there is something special and important about the physical togetherness of God's people. The examples of this are practically endless. So bear with me while we look at a few together. When God first made the world, he looked at each of the things that he had made and he said that they were good. Light and dark, good. Trees and shrubberies, good. Fish and birds and bugs, all good. Everything good. And then God makes a human being and he puts him in paradise. Seems good. But God says it is not good that man should be alone. So God makes Eve and puts her in the garden with Adam. In the final culminating moment of creation, God makes a marriage the first community, the first union of human beings. And it was very good, he says. He calls his people, the nation of his people, into his presence to come and meet with him in the tabernacle and then the temple. And he promises to dwell among them as a nation. He establishes covenant, not with individuals alone, but with a people He sends prophets to proclaim his word, most often to the nation of his people. In the New Testament, Christians are those who have been adopted into God's family, who together make up the body of Christ, and who are being built together into the dwelling place of God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? As I continue my quest, to bring clarity and efficiency to most of the English-speaking world, I want to point out to you that all three of the times that Paul says you in that verse are plural. What he's really saying is, y'all are God's temple, (laughs) the dwelling place of God's Spirit, y'all as a community of God's people. For the people of God, from the very beginning up to right now, a relationship with him has been both an individual reality and a collective one, a calling to join together with God's people in receiving his grace and beholding his glory. It is both a personal pursuit marked by inward commitment to righteousness and faithfulness and a calling to a community. That is why we meet together in churches around the world on Sunday mornings. I remember back when I was in college, I had just become a Christian, and I remember talking with a friend who'd been a Christian for a few years already, and he told me that he did not go to church because it just got in the way. I remember him saying that all he needed was a Bible, and that his faith was a thing that existed between him and God, and being a Christian did not require anybody but Christ. His ideal Sunday morning was a hike in the mountains or someplace that would inspire worship, And awe at the majesty of God. And I remember thinking, that sounds amazing. Here is someone who is so passionate, so devoted to God that he didn't need a sermon to inspire him. Or a praise band to help him worship. Those those were things that were crutches to him. He had no need for them. But that is not the way that John sees things. And it is not the teaching of Scripture. Gathering alongside God's people is God's design For our good and his glory. He commands Christians to make gathered worship a priority, as we read in Hebrews 10, when the author of that book tells believers to not neglect to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing. And it is the example set by Christians in the first century as they gathered for regular teaching, worship, and fellowship. In fact, the word ekklesia in Greek, which we just translate, to the word church in English originally just meant gathering or assembly. The first century Christian did not see his faith as an individual journey, one path alongside others moving toward Christ. Instead, they saw it as a calling to participate in the community of faith established and unified by Christ. They prioritized togetherness, gathering for fellowship And as Paul would write in Romans 12, loving each other as brothers and sisters, having been adopted into the household of God. It's a theme woven throughout Scripture, commanded by God and modeled by the first century church, and then demonstrated by John here at the end of this short letter. And John reveals to us that it is for our joy that God calls us into community and togetherness with other Christians. Being with the people of God is a tool that God uses to bring his people joy. Rather than writing a longer letter, he says that he would rather meet with these friends face to face for the sake of joy, so that their joy will be complete, he says. The word that he uses here, which is translated complete in the English Standard Version that I'm reading from this morning, is a word that has a sense of fullness or fulfillment And particularly in John's letters, this word is used in a relationship to joy. John really liked this concept, evidently. Thinking of joy like a glass of water that's being filled up from a pitcher. And there are some things that cut off the flow of water into the glass and other things that cause it to be filled up faster to the point that that joy is abundant and overflowing out of the top of the glass. Joy that stands in the face of hardship and suffering when God's good purposes are carried out and his people can rest in his affection and his providence and his mercy. God intends his people to have such abundant joy in the context of community and the presence of other believers. He is determined to bless his people through their fellowship. He reveals mysterious things. He teaches and raises up. He encourages and strengthens and equips us for good work, and he does it in our fellowship. And as he does, he fills our hearts with joy. So, in our remaining time this morning, I want to look at six reasons why God instructs his people to gather and why John would say that doing so fills up our joy. Now, I know that six main points sounds like a lot. So, first, God cares about presence. In the beginning, before Adam and Eve fell to temptation and were banished from the Garden of Eden, Genesis tells us that God walked with them in the Garden. They lived in His presence. That was God's design, that they would enjoy paradise together. And what made it paradise was not merely the lack of hunger or sickness or difficulty, but that all of their needs and all of their longings were satisfied by the presence of God himself. And the catastrophic moment for all of humanity came when they were banished from the garden, when they were cut off from that presence. And since that time, from the very day of Adam and Eve's expulsion from God's presence, he's been at work to bring humanity back, to set things right and to restore what was broken." We sometimes think, I think, of faith as an entirely spiritual activity, as if it exists in sort of a spiritual realm. Its goals are of a spiritual nature. We think that faith is entirely in that realm, and it is certainly not less than that, but Scripture makes clear that it is also more than that. God does not aim merely to restore the broken relationship between himself and sinful, rebellious people. Of course, he does aim to do that. We celebrate that every Sunday, but he also aims and intends to restore their place in his very physical presence. This theme is all over Scripture, which we've said a few times already this morning. When he established the tabernacle and the law, he did so with a promise to dwell in among his people, to physically be among them. Though it was, of course, an imperfect situation, the people could not behold God, they could not enjoy him in the way that God designed because the sin of the people still barred them from getting too close. So the people relied on priests to mediate for their sin and to bridge the gap for them. It was the system that God gave them in order for them to look forward to something better. The promise That in in the future, in a, a glorious future day, God's presence would be among them, not merely in a spiritual sense, but in a physical, tangible reality. And in our call to worship this morning, Pastor Eric read from Psalm 84. That psalm is all about the joyful day of reunion between God's people and His presence when all needs and longings are satisfied. And so we read in that psalm, one day in the courts of God is better than a thousand elsewhere. God cares deeply about presence. And it is for our good and our joy that he does. But that presence is not some far off distant horizon that we are waiting to meet. Because the assembly of God's people anticipates future glory. In addition to the Gospel of John and the books of 1 Second and third John, the apostle also recorded the vision that he had at the end of history in the book of Revelation. In that vision, John saw God culminate all of his redemptive plans, carry out judgment, and bring into his presence all of those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. And in the middle of that vision, he saw those people. And he writes in chapter 7, verse 9 After this, I looked. And behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. It is a great multitude, beyond counting and in the presence of God. But what John emphasizes here is not the location in God's presence, as amazing as that is, Or the activity of worship as enthusiastic as it is. Instead, he focuses on, he seems most interested in, the composition of the crowd. They are diverse. From every nation, from every tribe, from every people and language. The things that normally stand as walls between human beings, cultural barriers like language and geopolitical divisions and points in history are done away with. In the presence of God, none of those things that used to divide people have any power at all. It's amazing to think about this. Redeemed people from the opposite sides of wars, from different millennia with no common tradition, no common language, no shared experience apart from knowing the mercy of Christ will stand shoulder to shoulder in praise. But God is not waiting for the last day to bring that future glory to bear. A shadow of that future glory exists right now in the gathering of all churches from the first century till this century. That is what Paul explained in Ephesians 2 as he wrote to a church made up of people groups who were having a hard time getting along. He explains, Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So God is at work among his gathered people to tear down what divides them in order to establish in himself something new and united. And that is what we experience in all Christian fellowship. The bonds of unity that are made are not bonds of a shared interest like a fan club. They are not the bonds of a shared experience like an alumni organization or a common lineage like a family reunion, but of a shared redeemer and king. Our gathering in unity under the Lordship of Christ is what the author Jonathan Lehman calls a sort of time machine from the future, giving us a glimpse of the day when God will gather to himself all of his people. That is who he is, the God who brings together what was scattered and who gathers up what was lost. Because he is the God who has dealt with the dividing wall of sin that stood between himself and his people he makes peace where there was war. He makes affection where there was animosity. And in gathering, the church remembers this, enjoys it, and rejoices. Third, the church is the body of Christ. So, togetherness is critical. This is one of several illustrations that the writers of the New Testament used to describe the church. As a body made up of various parts with Christ himself as its head. That is the way that Paul explained it to the church in Corinth, when he, which was plagued with division and infighting. He explains in chapter 12 of that letter, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. When these people became Christians, they were grafted into the living, breathing body of Christ, And since Paul is writing to a divided church, he used this illustration to help them understand that even though parts of the body are different, they are not different in importance. He tells them the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Each has a role to play and each is important, so nobody in Christian fellowship should be treated otherwise. But the reason that I'm interested in Paul's illustration here is to notice that the body of Christ is only the body of Christ if it is together. A Christian by himself or herself is not the body of Christ. Let me illustrate this point with uh, a silly illustration. If you checked into a hotel and you walked into your room and you set your luggage down and then you noticed that there was a fingernail on the floor, it would be very strange for you to call the front desk and tell them that there was a body in your room. Because it's only a body if it's connected to the rest of a person. So Paul describes individual Christians as members of the body, and he makes a point that is only true of the church as a whole. He says, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Though we remain parts of the body when we are not together, there are things that are only true when we gather and participate in the community that we have been called into. Donald Whitney, in his book, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, explains, Your personal and private devotional experiences may rival those of Jonathan Edwards or George Mueller or other heroes of faith, but you need corporate worship. There's an, elephant of, there's an element of worship in the Christian life that can never be experienced in private worship or by watching worship online. There are some graces and blessings that our Father gives only when we meet together with other believers in his family. and That is true because, fourth, the gospel of Christ is incarnational by nature. The mission of the Son was to take on flesh, to dwell with his people. That's what incarnation means. And he did this so that with our blood in his veins, he could stand in our place under the judgment of his Father. That is our salvation, that God's Son would step off of his throne to come here to be among us and to suffer as one of us. He stepped away from the glory and the honor of his rightful place, to humble himself, to be born of a woman as a child in a poor family in a backwater town under the law that he ordained to live among a people who were terrible at following it. All so that he could bring these wayward people into his family. And now Christ calls his people to follow him, to become like him, and to take up his love for the church and for the world, It is a calling that requires us to step out of our own place, to humble ourselves as he did, and to go to those we are called to love. It is a calling to die to self-interest, to lay down our pride and to lace up our shoes. We don't fulfill this calling unless we are among God's people, in flesh, as he was in the flesh here. Christ came to us. And now he sends us in his name so our faith and our calling are incarnational by nature and because that is true we have some important responsibilities in assembly we declare the glory and goodness of god to one another paul instructed the church in colossae to let the word of christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Paul wants to make the point that the church is not a commodity and that Christians are not consumers. This is not a theater that we buy tickets to. We are participants here. We don't come to church only for the benefit of what it will be to us, but also for the responsibility that we have to others. Over the last 15 years or so, as I've worked in ministry mainly with students, I have often led a small group ministry for high schoolers, which we call Discipleship Group. And at the first meeting of that group every year, I made the same speech with the same main point. I told the group every year that if they were going to join, they needed to be as concerned with being a blessing to the other members of the group as they were for their own blessing in participating in the group. In this group, I tell them, you are not here just to be filled up, but to be part of God's work in filling up others. And that is part of the point that Paul is making in Colossians 3. First, he says, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Be filled up, convicted of sin and assured of God's mercy and encouraged to remember that he has secured a place for you in his household. But he doesn't stop there. Be filled up with the word, he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. God calls us into community, not only for our good, but for those that we sit next to in the pew. Christians have a responsibility not only to pursue the Lord, but to help others do it too. Now, there's certainly an argument to be made for the fact that we can do this without being together. I can read books by people I have never met, which can encourage and strengthen my faith. I can and do listen to sermon recordings from other churches that I've never been to, probably never visit, and they are still encouraging and edifying to me. But God has designed us to do this best when we are together. There are things he does in our midst when we are together, such as hearing the voices of our brothers and sisters singing with joy. We've seen over the last year that it is possible to learn and develop and mature as believers when meeting together is not possible, and we thank God for that. But there are things that are missing when circumstances prevent us from seeing each other face to face, which is clearest, I think, in our last point. In assembly, we care for one another. Galatians 6 instructs Christians to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That instruction comes immediately after Paul's teaching that if a believer is caught up in sin, it falls to his brothers and sisters in faith to come alongside him and restore him in a spirit of gentleness. The relationships between early Christians were not acquaintances. For them, it was a bond closer than blood, which they could depend on in a crisis. And that sort of relationship demands presence. This year has given us a powerful and painful reminder of that. This time last year, as the pandemic raged, people sat in hospital beds alone. Protocols had been established that prevented visitors At elder care facilities across the country, family members looked at each other through glass windows because they weren't allowed to see parents and grandparents. And along the way, we were reminded how much a hug can be worth. And that is why John, at the end of this short letter, says he would rather talk to these friends he loves so dearly face to face. These people are his family, and they are being attacked. So where else would he want to be? We understand that impulse. A couple months ago in January, I got a call from my mother letting me know that my grandmother had taken a bad fall and that things were not looking good. And I felt the 2,000 miles that stood between us in a more profound way than I had before. I wanted to be there. I wanted to hug my mom and pray with my grandma. God calls us to love one another in a way that demands presence in and among his church. This last year has taught us many things, and among them is the importance of being together, being gathered together with God's people. I'm not saying that tools like live streams and Zoom are unbiblical. Not at all. They are tools that God has given us to remain engaged and connected and rooted in Scripture during a time when physical gathering was unsafe. Like John, who wrote letters to those he could not gather with, we have thanked God for providing us with tools to carry on even as we grieve the circumstance that kept us apart. But along the way, we have learned that virtual church is really only virtually church. There are things that God does here. When we gather together, that he only does here. And those things are for our joy. Of course, that does not mean that this church or any church is a perfect place. Even if God does use the church to bring joy into our lives, every church is full of sinners and so every church is a flawed place but god means to bring joy to his people by gathering them by giving them a glimpse of future glory by calling them to minister to one another and by calling them to carry one another through suffering so even as we have grieved many things this year we ought to celebrate when god opens doors for us to gather as he has right here in massachusetts let us never again forsake or take for granted the assembly of God's people for the blessings that he gives us by bringing us together reminding us of his love and Christ's sacrifice and the new lives that we have together as the unified people of his kingdom. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> Father, we are we are grateful your presence by your spirit among us today we remember the words of your son that where two or three are gathered in my name there i am with them so we have reason to rejoice today lord and we ask that you would continue to cause this virus to recede around the globe we know that even while it is safe for us to gather here in massachusetts for many many nations it is not and we pray that you would open doors for your people to safely gather be with us bless us and cause us to love one another well, to take up this calling, to participate in your community, not only for our benefit, but acknowledging our responsibility and calling to love and serve our brothers and sisters. Remind us of the good purposes you have for gathering your people together, and give us hope for the day when you will finish this work in glory. We are your people, and you are our God, and we approach you together, is the body of your Son, redeemed by his blood and made a united people. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.